0: Welcome, everyone,
1: to this evening's event of the Library Sustainability Series. Um, Prior to introducing our featured speaker for this evening, uh, I want to do a quick plug for some of the other events that um, the library will be putting on. Um, All of them surrounding uh, the ideas uh, with the campus read, Um, which for the life of me, what the eyes don't see, (laughs) right, Um, uh, focusing on the Flint water crisis. Um, So next Friday we have the first in our um, uh, Open Jeopardy games. We're going to see how that goes and that'll be right here in this space. I promise you it'll be fun. Might not be it's organized, but it'll be fun. Um, after that, uh, November 12th, we have our own uh, Dr. Olsen Kupek uh, talking about the cost of actual corruption uh, paid for with the teachers of our children. And after that, we have uh, a screening of Frontline's Flint, uh, Flint's Deadly Water. And that'll be November 20th, this uh, Wednesday. Okay, um, if everybody can just turn off their phones and other beeping electronic devices that you break, uh, know that bathrooms are open the back. Um, I am very happy to introduce our featured speaker for this evening, um, Tony Anthony is the founder of AKT Peerless, an environmental consulting firm founded in Michigan, but is now all over the country, but based in the Midwest. He is an environmental engineer with a bachelor's in geology uh, from the University of Michigan, a master's in civil engineering from Wayne State. He is an expert in contaminant Phaeton transport. Is that? It? transport. Yeah. Okay, I was somewhat close <laughs> Okay. And remediation. <clears throat> uh, here in Michigan, he serves on the um, state water permit review panel, and he is a member of the ITRC PFAS um, Actual Committee. An interesting fact. Uh, Tony recently, just this past weekend, I believe, became a grandfather for the first time. So help me welcome Tony.
0: So before before I get started, there are parts of this that can get pretty technical and pretty deep. So um, I see there's probably a group of students here. So I'd like to get a feel for your background. What are your majors? Natural Resources, Minority. Biology, Criminal Justice, Criminal Justice, Geology. 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 Okay, we'll want to interview the four of you <laughs> graduates. So we, we've had, you know, someone asked me how many LSSU grads do we've had come through the company. I think it's somewhere around five. Uh, right now I only have one LSSU grad. Uh, one of the others is now representing, um, uh, a firm that started a uh, vapor mitigation company—they're like the leaders in the nation. He's like their head uh, technical representative out of California. LSSU grad. Um, another is head of environmental for the city of Toronto. LSSU grad. Uh, the other two I haven't uh, been able to keep up with. Um, and then the fifth one. Oh, still works. So, um, the what you'll find is that the environmental field is multidisciplinary. So whether it's geology or whether it's biology, um, whether it's natural resources, it really requires all of those disciplines that can come together. And you're going to see that in this presentation. Um, we're going to see that uh, when we're looking at what's an acceptable exposure, uh, which we may want to look at from a standpoint of how does it transport through depositional environment. We didn't know all the biology behind. We need to know uh, what's its effect on animals, what's its effect on humans. So it requires that discipline, multidisciplinary field, to come together. And you'll see that even within our firm, from engineers to geologists to biologists to soil scientists, um, all of them become important as we go through and work on these issues. All right, how about over on this side? Um, Anyone in the field? Are we um, with the university, or just curious about the topic? I'm a professor in
1: the Institute of physical
0: sciences and GIS. Oh, wonderful! I'm a my oh, good. <laughs> good. very good. So, um, and I have um, one of two, of two geologists that came through the company. One of the over in Toronto was a geologist. The one I still have is a geologist. It was uh, Natural uh, Sciences, which is the one that's out in California with the mitigation. So you're at a good school. All right, so let me get started on this. One of the things that you'll find is Michigan really is focused on being out in front. If you really want to be out in front, you mentioned Flint earlier. There's this dedication not to have a repeat of Flint. If we look at this, the, the title of this presentation being Emerging Contaminant. That's how EPA defines this as well. This is an emerging contaminant. It's how the, the business news, Bloomberg, will define it. Emerging contaminant. There's probably a list of about 23 emerging contaminants right now. And what they mean when they're saying it's emerging, it means, well, we think it probably needs to be regulated because it has an adverse effect on humans or the environment, But we don't have enough data yet to be certain. Or there's a debate within the industry on whether we have that. And we'll find, as we start to peel the onion back here, that we're in a similar position when it comes to uh, PFAS. Who has been following in the news any of the PFAS um, articles that pop up? So if you're in Michigan, just about every hand should go up. We have more active sites right now than just about any other state. So these are, I uh, grabbed from just some of the headlines throughout the state. PFAS found in drinking water of one and a half million in, in the state. That headline is a year old, so it's probably double that now, do it's not any more. So uh, astronomical PFAS level sets near Michigan to contamination milestone. Miles miles. right? uh, Michigan <laughs> yeah. must act type drinking water from PFAS. Congress urged to act swiftly on national <laughs> PFAS laws, Michigan's next environmental crisis is PFAS. This is one of the sites. This is um, Wordsmith Air Force Base. So this is an OSCODA. So the, the state and the Air Force has been working on this particular site for, for quite a while. Um, I put this one up first because it really illustrated this well. Almost all military bases have some degree of a power. And that's because of firefighting fall. Um, and if you're in the military, you train, you train, you train, you train, you train. So you're training for emergencies, which means if you're in the firefighting crew, you are training over and over. Um, we are going to see some pictures after this. This is Vanity Lake. And this is... Lake Huron. Eaton Lake has the highest PFOS concentrations of any surface water body in the country, at least that we know right now. These are some uh, photographs that were published in I think I'm live of uh, Vannington Lake showing PFOS, where you could visibly see the chemical, the foam uh, moving through here. The concentration of some of the PFOS chemicals in Lake Lake range from 110,000 part per trillion to 180,000 part per trillion. Fish advisories are out here. Um, you can even see when the wind picks up how thick the foam can be. Uh, there was a foam advisory, don't touch the foam. Uh, this is also the only place in the country where there was a venison advisory. So uh, to not hunt the deer that were also in this area. So this is from ATSDR. ATSDR, the Agency toxic, toxic Substance Disease Registry. It's a national agency. It's part of the CDC in Atlanta. And the reason why this agency is important is they house all the toxological data that the government uses when they're looking at how are you going to manage an an acceptable exposure So here they're showing water resources that are contaminated across the country. So you can see we're not the only ones, but we happen to be probably the most active right now with trying to find these sites and to address these sites. ATSDR estimated that in the 80s or 90s, Ninety-eight percent of Americans all had PFAS in their bloodstream. It means every one of us, every one of us probably has it right now. It wasn't just firefighting. It's in anything that's waterproofing or stain resistant. So depending on how old this carpet is, it's probably in this carpet to fight stains. How many of you guys backpack? That back row does. You know, and you go through and you're treating all of your equipment for waterproofing. That's yeah, it's PFAS. So you're looking at um, Scotchgard, Stain Master, Teflon Gore-Tex. Any of you remember using a frying pan where that stuff is peeling up? Yeah, that's, that's PFAS. Um, so nonstick pans, um, pizza boxes. You know that coating to keep the oil from going through? PFAS. Butcher pan. Microwave popcorn bags. Um, it was used in metal plating to slow down any volatilization of chemicals. In the- So it's pervasive. It was everywhere in our country. And in 1998, just looking at two of the PFAS chemicals, they estimated that every American had 36 part per billion. Not part per trillion, but part per billion in their bloodstream. So, in 2005, the two largest manufacturers were 3M and DuPont they stop manufacturing. So you can see when they stop manufacturing, we get this rapid decrease. So to where it's less than 2 parts per billion. Now this is important. I want you to note this in the back of your head because we're gonna get back to another segment in here where we look at what are we exposed to in PFAS other than in drinking water? Where we can say, in probably in 98, it was pretty heavy. But as we're getting today, it's becoming much more controlled because the manufacturing of it is is far less. So when we find this, what did EPA do to respond to it? So they come up with what they call a drinking water health advisory limit. This is not a drinking water standard, and the reason why this is important is it limits what the federal government can do from a regulatory standpoint. If it's an advisory limit, all they can do is say, You might want to watch out for it, but we really can't stop anyone from putting it in your drinking water. They do want to do something about it. In February they came out and they published some details of what they're trying to do. So those of you that go into this field, you're going to have to learn two main regulatory acts that really drive a lot of what we do. So one is called we've acted in a CERCLA, Comprehensive Environmental Responsibility Compensation Liability <laughs> Act, or the easy word is superfund, because they created a huge tax fund to clean up sites. It was a superfund. And the other one is RCRA, Resource Conservation Recovery Act. So this act is how we address historical contamination. RCRA is how we prevent it from occurring. So they then looked at the act of CERCLA and how can we use this to try to address all the contamination in the country. So what they found and what they said they can do is if they find an area that's an eminent threat to human health in the environment, we can use federal funds to clean it up and uh, address it. But we don't have the authority to do cost recovery to the person who polluted it or the ability to order the polluter to do anything about it. And we won't be able to do that until PFAS moves from a health advisory limit to what's called a hazardous substance. So staffers at EPA were hoping that this year they would make that change. But now we probably have some politics, which could be well justified when we start to drill into the science on you know, how, what's our, our level of uncertainty. EPA plans on looking at these six. Now there's over 2,000 of these chemicals, by the way. So the most, um, the, the only two we really look at now are PFOS and PFOA. And, um, but these other four will come online from a federal level soon. Now in order to tell you that we can regulate it, we have to have toxological data. So who's the biologist over here? We have to go through the studies of, of either finding out what was it the result of a human exposure in epidemiology, or we have to dose an animal like mice to get the toxicology and come up with some kind of allowable or unacceptable dose before we can get to where we know how to regulate this. So you can see that though they want to regulate these, they don't have the data yet. And this is why we're in a world to where we have this contaminant and we have a great deal of uncertainty. So the state of Michigan just went through Flint. They are not going to let Flint happen again. So they jumped on this right away, and this actually started with Governor Snyder. And with Governor Snyder, the state established uh, what was called MPARTC acronym, Michigan PFAS Action Response Team. And within that is the Science Advisory Committee. The one thing that they did in there, well, amongst other things, but one thing I think they did there was brilliant. So we're going to look later on at lawsuits One of the leaders in our nation with PFAS epidemiology, studying human exposure, is Dr. David Savitz. And Dr. David Savitz is part of MPART. And with the new governor, he still remains on as an advisor to the state. So at least we are getting the the best and brightest that are helping navigate. The state went through and said, okay, federal government, you're not gonna make the 70 part per trillion a drinking water standard, you're just gonna tell us to look out for it, we'll make it a drinking water standard. So right now, this is regulated at 70 part per trillion. So any site in the state that has this above this limit has to take action in order to remediate the site. We're expecting April next year that the state is going to make these even stricter. So they're going to lower, so screening level means if you've detected one of these compounds at this concentration, and this is part per trillion. So remember we talked about what's in your bloodstream is part per billion? So this is a thousand, order of a thousand less than that. So if we find this, we have to do more investigation so that we can see, is the problem worse? And at these levels, this would trigger action in order to do it. So we're expecting that this will probably go into law in April, but again, we we have a political world that this has to navigate through it. Is that federal law or state law? State law. I don't really, ex- I think EPA staffers working on this are optimistic. I really don't see um, the federal, the administration allowing PFAS to be a hazardous substance under this current administration. So, depending on how our election goes next year, we'll probably dictate it. The other thing the state did is they sent a letter to every municipality that has a wastewater treatment plant. Sault Ste. Marie has a wastewater treatment plant on Pleasant, Midland, Detroit, Grand Rapids. And what they told them is we want you to go and collect samples upstream of people who are all discharging into your wastewater treatment And we want to see if anyone is discharging PFAS into your plant. And they even went to say, look for metal platers, anyone that does fabric or leather, um, or water repellents like a carpet manufacturer or anything related with firefighter foam. These are are high risks. The thing though is that the state didn't do a full explanation on if you find it, what do you do? And we have some circumstances where once it's found, they've been taking action to uh, stop those that are putting PFAS into the sanitary stream, but no action on is the sanitary stream after treatment truly discharging. They kind of don't want to know right now because of what the cost is and what we'd have to do in order to respond. Um, But we do have um, uh, surface water discharge limits for PFOS and PFOA that, that, for those plants. So we have the limit, we just haven't, not, I don't think anyone really has looked or told anyone they've looked to see what's in their outflow. So one of the problems that we have with the municipality is a lot of municipalities own their own landfills and they also own their own waste treatment plant. So what they would do is they would take their leachate from their landfill, take it to their wastewater treatment plant, they treat their leachate. Well, the systems aren't designed to take out PFAS, so it flushes through. And then also, think of sanitary waste, it has all those solids in there. So they take that filter cake and they compost it, and then they apply it to agricultural land. In here they found that the composted material from the wastewater treatment plant was loaded with PFAS, and they have been applying it to agricultural land for years. So now the problem for them is, not only do they have the cost that they have to treat, but now what do they do? this uh, filter cake. Do you take it to a landfill? Well, now it can get into the that It becomes this catch-22, where we don't fully know what, what to do. So that's why this leads me to this slide. When we look at it, I go, when we're regulating something at a part-per-trillion level, is it enough, or is it too much? Because The lower you go, the more technically challenging it is to achieve and the more costly it is to achieve. So, for fear of being a really dumb question,
1: there's no dumb questions. There's dumb people that ask questions. But, but, so how do we know that these chemicals are bad and what do they do, like what is it about?
0: 7 per trillion you that, Well, how do you know that it's? Like, you know, we're actually going to get into that. Oh, I'm going I'm to walk oh, us through. So, and this is where it can get a little petty. We're gonna, I'm going to try to walk you through how you take data from um, a toxicological study. So you're dosing mice of different concentrations, and then you do this statistical analysis of you're looking for an adverse effect, and then based on those concentrations you extrapolate what's called a reference dose. And now you put it through a bunch of math, and we'll take a look at that in a little, in a little bit. Um, but essentially, all we can do now is through observation. We do know that how some of these behave, now keep in mind that all of these are different. Partly why they weren't regulated before is because our toxicology historically has been based on um, toxins, and carcinogens, these behave a little differently. Sometimes they're a toxin, sometimes they're a carcinogen, and sometimes they just mess with the endocrine system. And we don't really, in our toxological studies, look at all of the endpoints that are needed to look at the endocrine system. And that's partly how they slip through. So for instance, one of these, where you saw the, the endpoint, the adverse endpoint was a raise in cholesterol, it works just like cholesterol medication in that it comes up to a cell membrane and it fools the, is it Stamata that allows it through the membrane? So what it does is it comes up, it matches its shape, crosses the cell membrane, then goes over to the mitochondria, crosses the cell membrane, goes up to the RNA and recodes it. Now cholesterol medication recodes it so you don't produce cholesterol. So it's done well in the pharmaceutical industry. This one recodes it so you produce cholesterol. So, functioning the same way, but having a different end result. Right? Right. So, polyfluoroalkide substances. All of these names are huge mouthfuls to try to say, which is why I've avoided it and just used their acronyms. But essentially, they're based on carbons. So you'll see the um, science advisory panel uh, that Dr. Savage was on was called the C8 advisory panel for eight carbons that are in the chain. So where this is different than any other chemical that we've looked at before is that it has a reactive end and it has a tail. And these two are exactly opposite. Part of it might like water and the other part hates water. Part of it might like oil and the other part of it hates oil. It does the opposite things in the same molecule. It had to be man-made. So what happens is let's say that I want to create a coating on a uh, pan so it's non-stick. So this reactive end comes up to the metal. It attaches to the metal, but the other end hates metal. So it forces it to swing up. Or like think of a mosquito larva in water coming up to the surface and the tail hangs. And if you line enough of these up, you get a coating. So that's how you create coatings that prevent water from soaking in, oil from soaking in. It's also how you create foaming, because if you can send this to the surface of the water of the air water interface, it'll foam. So you get your foaming agent. So that's how these things work. This, this, (laughs) I'm not going to take you through every detail, but I left this in because this molecule is so different that it's changed how we do things in the field. We've been collecting samples and doing investigations for over 30 years, but now our traditional ways of what do we put the sample in has to change. You would think that glass being uh, an inert silica, would, you would have no absorption of the chemical, yet this stuff will stick on glass. When you go to collect these samples, you have to record when the last time you took a shower because all your personal hygiene products may have had PFAS in it. And if we're looking at a part per trillion, we have to account for everything we can think of that could cause cross-contamination. It's so difficult to adapt our lab methods to that there's only one EPA method, and if you actually use the EPA method in the manner in which it's written, your data would be skewed. You have to modify it. So right now they, they use what they call as a modified method 537, which is EPA drinking water, or an ASTM method, ASTM 7979. But Circla and Superfund have not come up with, published a method yet. We were hoping it was gonna come out last year, and then we thought, well, it'll come out this year, and then we thought, well, maybe fall this year, and we still don't know when the method will come out. So now we're looking, at part per trillion, we have all sorts of questions on how the analytical method works, and if we're consistent, and how we collect a sample if one company is collecting it the same way that the other company has. So we're dealing with part per trillion, and we have uncertainty in the consistency of the sample collection and the analysis. So now you can see another layer of uncertainty. So now we'll get into the toxicology. So what drove me to this, is I do remediation. So I look at how am I going to clean groundwater and achieve this? If I'm going to take contaminated water, and I have to get down to a 70 part per trillion, can I do that? So EPA had the science advisory limit to 70 part per trillion and This was based on a toxicological study in 2006. They were dosing mice. So they would dose mice and they would watch for an adverse effect. The adverse effects they saw is in newborns, the eye opening was slowed down, body weight was low, calcification of the bones in the digits was delayed, Um, uh, maternal liver weight was low. So because they saw those, they then look at, at what (coughs) dose did we cause a problem with the mice, and we, we extrapolate that to a human to come up with a drinking water. Before we look at how they did it, I want to show you the other side. So now we looked at toxicology and we looked at mice. The C8 Science Advisory Panel looked at humans. So we saw earlier the graph of all the drinking water that was um, elevated along the Ohio River Valley coming down from that Tupont plant. So now they went and These epidemiologists went and looked at the humans that were exposed to see if they could find what they call a probable link or no link. The reason they did this is they were suing DuPont and what the agreement was is whatever these neutral experts came up with is how they would quantify damages. Oh, here we go. Sorry, I thought I had put this up earlier. The workers at the plant in their blood had 410 part per billion. So remember, we looked at most Americans had 36. Now we're moving to the citizens' downflow on the Ohio River Valley. So we're looking at 228, 92, 42, 23. So definitely we were having an increased exposure if their blood levels were high. So what did they see? High cholesterol, we talked about how that happens. Ulcerative colitis, thyroid, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, um, high blood pressure during pregnancy. I just heard on national news today when I was driving up here, uh, it was on Bloomberg News, that there was a new study that's come out that has shown another PFAS chemical causing testicular cancer and new jury awards. But we want to keep this in mind because I'm going to put up and compare mice versus humans. So we look at the mice. This is a study that came up with the 70 part per trillion. Newborns, eye opening, body weight, bone calcification, maternal liver weight. This is the epidemiological study looking at human exposure. They don't match. So that creates another set of uncertainty. They didn't find any link for birth defects, which is what most of these would have been. No links for miscarriages, no link for low birth weight. Um, the only time they looked at bones is they found um, there was, uh, was for arthritis in the elderly. But they did find, again, for the mom, an adverse effect during pregnancy. Instead of the liver, it was high blood pressure. But now we see this inconsistency. Who is right? Are they both right? Is one wrong? Is the other right? And so it, it puts us in this air of what, what is our true risk? So I want to come back up to here and point out here's one of the reasons why. Humans bioaccumulate PFAS. You have a small dose, it stays in your body for 10, 20 years. I actually think it's 70. But let's go with it's accumulating for 10 years. Mice and rodents expel PFAS in three to four days. So how am I going to dose a rodent so that they have the exposure long enough so I can be equivalent to a human? So that discrepancy creates some uncertainty. And one of these slides is AS. Um, ASTDR actually goes through and they say, um, yeah, you know what, we have some uncertainty because these things don't match. They probably don't match because of, of this difference. So c- coming here, are we conservative enough? So I'm looking at this, and again, I'm thinking, I want to be protective of human health and the environment, but I want to still be able to design a system that I can actually truly clean this water. So. Where should we really be? So now we're going to start to look at this calculation. So when they were dosing mice, this study found that the level that the mice could handle was one milligram per kilogram per day. But we have to now change it to humans because humans bioaccumulate. So they do this thing, it's called a biokinetic model. Someone already did the math. They use it in the pharmaceutical industry. And they run it through this model, and then their adjustment comes out to, lowers it by three orders of magnitude because of bioaccumulation. All right, something we've been using for a long time. But do we always have the case where one set of mammals bioaccumulates and the other set of mammals eliminates? Not always. So that discrepancy has to make you pause and ask. But let's just assume we've done it for so long, it's in the pharmaceutical industry, we just go But now we come down to what we call as uncertainty factors. And you'll see even Eagle will talk about uh, the uncertainty factors that they use in order to make sure that the public is protected. So the uncertainty factors account for variations within humans. They account for, um, well, you know what, we don't know very well, so since we don't know very well, let's put another number in there. And then they also account for the change from rodents to humans. So variation within humans, variation between species, and then an extra little number because we really don't know. So in this case, the uncertainty factor became 300. So when you take the biokinetic model, which already adjusted human to mice, or mice to humans, divide by 300, you end up with a reference dose of 0.00018. So now you've lowered it five orders of magnitude before you even get into the equation to calculate your acceptable drinking water. So you can see they're functioning and acting in a conservative manner. You know, is is it conservative enough? There's the other side of me of is it too much so? So, now we get into the algorithm where we're going to say, we know what happened in the mice, we've adjusted it to humans, so now let's calculate what we can drink. So how how much water does a human drink a day? For years, we've used two liters of water a day. The pharmaceutical industry uses 1.3 liters of water a day. But in 2014, EPA did a study across a broad range, and they found that lactating women for a 10-month period of their life can drink up to 3.8 liters of water a day. When we do these algorithms, we're supposed to reflect an entire lifetime, not necessarily a segment. So because of that, they use 3.8 liters a day. So I don't know if any of you go on diets and try to log how much water you drink, it's really hard to drink two liters of water a day. the soda
1: cup, or is it just <laughs> <of> water? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so there, what in the equation we've nearly doubled the dose because we doubled the amount of water. So now there's another part that goes into these equations, which is relative source contribution. And what the relative source contribution says is, it says that, you know, what I rolled around on a carpet and I'm going to have a PFAS exposure, so I'm not just getting it from the water. So in 1998, it probably made sense that once you calculated the drinking water, you could only use 20% of its value. And that's what we still do today. Except for Alaska. They'll use 50% of its value. So, we're now doubling the dose. We're only using 20% of the value. And then we come up with this 70-part trillion.
1: So that's just like a
0: political choice, or like... Not, they're just, they're not, not, not necessarily, you know, you, have, you realize that s- some sciences are really based on clinical observation and statistical analysis. So toxicology falls within that. So they've been doing this stuff for years. And um, there there's a, is this desire where we want to protect our neighbors, you know. So um, part of it can be political. Um, I think part of it is this great desire just to be protected. Um, But often our society has become so complex that when you're thinking of, when you're the person that's analyzing the toxicological data for drinking water data, you're not necessarily thinking of the engineer who has to work with the wastewater treatment plant and has to raise the money to build that plant in order to achieve that. number. So we can be disconnected. And, and that's common because of the, the depth, of complexity within our fields today. And like how we said, any environmental company is gonna have a multidisciplinary team. If you're just one, you're way too narrow to be able to handle the problems in your So there's, there's not any ill will at this, at this point. Um, but my point is we need to really think about what we're doing because it, it's going to have Um, other unintended consequences so here if we compare it to other places this isn't part per billion so you can see Michigan is at that 70 part per trillion Um, you can look at how many other states are Connecticut Colorado Alaska is at the 400 that we talked about Uh, Texas is at 290 The UK is at 300, Canada is at 200. We're all using the same toxicological data. It's just how are we putting it through the algorithms for allowable exposure that we get these. But when you deal on a part per trillion level, suddenly an order of magnitude is a big deal. Which, why does that matter? So um, this is Bay City, this is one of their old landfills. You know, so at one time they were taking the leachate from here, putting it through the wastewater treatment plant. Now fortunately, Bay City has a carbon system that's at the end of their, of their treatment plant. Uh, this one is Mount Pleasant. Mount Pleasant now has a landfill, has a problem, so we're looking at how do we fix that. And of course the plant operator said, can't we put it through our plant? No, because you're a traditional wastewater treatment plant which you're gonna screen out the sediment, you're gonna settle out the fines, you're gonna use a biological treatment, and then you're gonna settle again, and think of each time it settles, the solids settle, you go to a sludge, you go to a filter press, you compost it, you put it back out on agricultural land, and then the water you discharge at the other end of the Chippewa River. But the system isn't designed to uh, treat these. Carbon works for the two that we had talked about, PFOS and PFOA. But when you look at the other chemicals that are coming online, the efficiency of using carbon really decreases. The system in Bay City was about a $10 million capital investment just to put that carbon in. and doesn't include what will be needed in the future of the different types of pretreatment, which are experimental because we haven't really sorted out what works in order to make the other chemicals in a position that will absorb onto carbon. So municipalities are, how am I going to treat PFAS? Uh, what's that cost of treatment going to be? Who's going to pay for it? My filter cake, have I been composting it? Almost every city does. You know, except for one now, the Pierre can. And, um, and am I dealing with the municipal leachate that I'm putting through my wastewater treatment These are real life Uh, situations, and in my opinion, what caused the problem in Flint is not the staff, it's not a politician It was the collapse of our manufacturing and that our cities were going bankrupt. When you start to pull money out of a municipality, they can't keep their talent. When you can't keep your talent, bad things happen. So how will this fit into municipal budgets? Which is why I started to drill into, do we really need to go that low? And can we be more open about it? And what's interesting is in ITRC just last month, when the committee all got together, we're now focusing on what's allowed to be discharged into surface water bodies. So, and this is a mixture of private sector and um, and state regulators. Um, and uh, out of New Jersey, they were thinking, well, maybe we'll use um, MCL, which is based on drinking water, which takes relative source contribution, a higher dose of water, and I pointed this out to them. And you know, now we're trying to really look at it together and sort out where should we be. And the tough part is you want to be protective of human health and the environment. Everybody that's functioning on this is doing it with good will, <clears throat> but we have a great deal of uncertainty and being too protective can have a consequential effect elsewhere. So the, I'll tell you, the people that benefit from this are the plaintiff So when I was driving up and I heard a new study came out, showed a different chemical cost to your cancer, tied it. The reason it was in business news is because immediately there were settlements for it. So um, where this first came out was DuPont in the Ohio River Valley, and we'll talk about the story of how that happened. What's interesting is the attorney who exposed all this, I got a call from one of the guys I work with, actually was talking to down in Lansing today and telling the story. Um, In Minnesota, this one settled for $850 million um, beginning of this year. There's There's two big ones in Alabama. And then Michigan were loaded from um, our Air Force bases to um, Wolverine, which was from the Leading process. So in um, Ohio, and this is how the whole thing came to life. So you had a DuPont plant that was manufacturing Teflon. They had a landfill that they put their industrial waste in, and next to this landfill was a farmer that had cattle. He was complaining that his cattle had an adverse health effect. And it was because of leaching from the landfill going into the ponds of the water that his cattle were drinking. So we got a plaintiff attorney to help him out and to try to take on DuPont. So one of the first things they did is they hired, um, they agreed with DuPont, they hired these neutral third-party veterinarians and the veterinarians went and studied it, and they came back and they said, well, it's not the landfill, you're just a bad farmer. So um, he's a generational farmer, so imagine it really pissed him off. So now the attorney um, takes on, uh, gets epa loaned. And so uh, you've heard of the Food and Drug Administration, so any new pharmaceutical drug before it comes out on the market has to go through the FDA. Well, for a chemical plant, any new chemical that's made has to go through what we call TOSCA, Toxic Substance Control Act, to get government approval to enter the market. So when DuPont was developing these chemicals, they were providing toxicological data to EPA through TOSCA. So the avenue that they used is they got EPA to sue DuPont for not releasing all the toxicological data they had. So they succeeded. But how it, 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 how it settled was, DuPont said, yes, we have more toxicological data, but we provided you everything the law required for us to provide, so we're not guilty. But we'll pay you 16.5 million as a penalty and give you all that toxicological data, but we're not admitting fault. So that's how it ends in 2005. Well, as soon as this data comes out, Now the plaintiff attorney is able to see it's not just an animal issue. We now have human exposure and we have adverse effects on human exposure. So that's when they test all the drinking water systems downflow from the plant. And then now a class action suit comes out. And with the class action suit, it's 2017 when the 70 part per trillion comes into effect. And last year, they settled at 671 million. But that was based on that CA Science Advisory Panel's observation. So you can see how they didn't match up. Are there things they missed? Because we just don't know yet. You know, probably. You know, and so, um, but you know, they they did the best they could with what they had at, at the time. Um, this then opened it up. And what it opened it up for now were plaintiff attorneys. So, um, Minnesota, instead of this being a plaintiff attorney, this was the uh, state attorney general. And they then sued 3M. The 3M plant contaminated uh, the groundwater, drinking water source in Washington County. Um, They went to an epidemiologist out of Berkeley, and he studied the population within Washington County, and what he found is that there is a statistical significance in a lower diameter, skull diameter, in newborns. But after two months, it all goes back to normal. But it was based on that that they were able to show damage so that they had the the $850 million settlement there. Um, So now you can even see, if we went back and looked at the Lao study and the C8 science advisory panel, we didn't see any of those there. Right now, the epidemiology is at a stage to where we're going out to look for a problem, as opposed to having a control unit and a unit that's dosed, and then watching it over time and seeing what the true effect is. And if I was a toxicologist or epidemiologist, there's a, there are names for those. You know, and one is better than the other. But the really good studies to truly know take five to ten years. And that's where we're at, because we're just beginning those studies now. Oh, what's interesting is both here, um, the DuPont and the 3M, they also did for the community exactly what the Air Force Base had to do for Oscoda Township. They put in carbon adsorption for the wastewater treatment plant, and they um, were paying for individual homes that were on wells to have their own smaller water treatment systems. What we were able to do for Oscoda to to Township, because we couldn't get the Department of Defense to put up more money, is we applied for a grant from the Department of Agriculture and we were able to get a $3 million grant so that we could expand the reach of the municipal water system so we could get more people off groundwater and get them on the city drinking water that had the carbon and the, the treatment system for it. Um, so that, that's kind of a common, Um, middle ground. In Alabama, uh, in the uh, Coosa and Kosota Rivers, they start in Georgia. And up in Georgia, it's like uh, how we're the auto industry, they're the carpet industry. So you have Mohawk, you have uh, Shaw, um, you have all these carpet manufacturers. And then you have 3M because they're the ones selling in the Scotchgard to put onto the carpet. And then you have BFI, because they're the ones with the landfills that all the waste will, goes to that's left over. And all of this is contributing PFAS into the river, which then flows into Alabama and contaminates everybody's drinking water, because the river is their source. These sites right now are being aggregated into class action sites. There's another one in Alabama for the Tennessee River, and that one's DuPont. And that's the one that has the highest concentrations for workers um, in the river. Street. And I don't think that one has settled yet. Um, with for Air Force Base. So we talked about it at the beginning: fish advisory, foam advisory, deer advisories. Um, see these little plumes here? So when we were working on those, and we were looking at why, you know, we could say here is where the Stormwater collection system was for the runoff from the runways. Here's where the tanks were that stored the PFAS, and here was a, a municipal wastewater <coughs> treatment system that would treat the water, but wasn't effective for PFAS that discharged them here. For what we so when the base was operating, they would have foam parties. They would take a parking lot, they'd load it with foam, be like a toga party. They'd load it with foam, and they'd grab drinks, and they'd all just move around in the foam. Created these extra plumes. Oh, this is pretty interesting. Early on, so Senator Stamps, State Senator Stamps, and this is in his district, he passed state legislation that would um, make the health advisories drinking water limits. That's partly how we got to where the state had a drinking water limit and not an advisory limit. And once they did the regulatory limit for drinking water, they went to the Department of Defense and said, now it's regulated clean it. So if I blow this up, Department of Defense sent the state a letter and said, nice try, but we're using sovereign immunity. Uh, We don't have to follow state law, we only have to follow federal law, and the federal government hasn't made it a drinking water, therefore we're not doing anything. So there's been a lot of haggling back and forth, but at least we were able to get Department of Defense to put in the carbon system for the city. There's still a long way to go, but you can see that it, there's a lot of pieces that won't be done until you can regulate it at the federal level. Um, but we also have to get a lot more funding into the toxicological and epidemiology studies so we know where to set that number. Because as we set these really low numbers, we're gonna create con- unintended consequences for municipalities in, um in the costs of Uh, Wolverine, this is, uh, here we have a liable party. And so, uh, EP- EPA Region 5 has issued Wolverine in order. DEQ is entered into a consent order. So it's been very cooperative. But they do argue over what is an acceptable limit to coin to. But this site is probably the one that's functioning between a liable party and a regulatory agency. How it should, or at least the, the closest to how it should. Um, I put up here what's next. Um, besides municipalities, they're going to be faced with what to do, not just Lapeer. Lapeer is the only one so far in Michigan that has really kind of been forced to have to deal with it. Um, Bay City is um, quiet about their work, um, and but very cooperative with the regulatory agents. Mount um, well, Pleasant, they're just at the beginning of what they're going to do. And these are just to name a few of our municipalities. Um, so you'll see that more in the future. There's a whole other side of the economy that we haven't even touched on here. And once the federal government designates this as a hazardous substance, it now will be incorporated into due diligence on every real estate So when you think about how pervasive it is and how low these levels are, so if your commercial property is considered contaminated, you would not be valuing your property. Yeah.
1: So we we touched on the ingestion pathway, drinking water, bioaccumulation, etc. Where are we at with the other pathways, such as Inhalation, direct contact, you know,
0: involved with that. Yeah. What number two. So, um, right now, dermal, they're saying that it's not a problem with dermal exposure, okay. but we do know that when the state looks at dermal exposure, they also combine it with ingestion, because the thought is if you have it on your hands, you're not washing your hands all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, you're touching yourself. So there's probably some degree of ingestion. But the actual movement through your skin, that, that's not a risk. Inhalation? Inhalation, the molecule is really big, so from a volatile standpoint it's not volatilizing, <coughs> but attached to dust could be a particulate issue, and that we haven't done any studies on right now. So these are all... There's a lot of unknowns, uh-huh.
1: because you look at the, the kinchlobe base we have here with 3-development, the former tannery on the water which we're working on, yeah. which may
0: predate the PFAS. No, it doesn't. Okay. So, and, and, right. so in Kinchlow you have three drinking water wells. One has been shut down because okay. of PFAS. That's incorrect. Oh, it's not? It's... Yeah. it's we have five drinking five... wells and we didn't shut down. Oh, you didn't? No. Okay. Because All right. Limited good. limited the use. Oh, limited the use? Yes. Okay. And um, how... Um, did, tell us more about... Their um, what they found, what what the plan is, what they're looking at. So we had one well that was elevated under the 70, so we took action and reduced the usage. And we have been on the ACOM state quarterly sampling, and the last one I the results I got back were ND for that. Okay. So, and what I understand, is that well closest to where the old landfill portion was? No. It's okay. It's closest to where the, the fuel supply point was. Okay. Well, good. See, and at least now they've been, they've looked at all five of the wells with, it. AECOM is the contractor for the state that has been going and looking at wells and at um, municipal Yeah, all of our wells were tested, only one came back with any result. But now you're looking at it's clean. And they'll continue to monitor it to to look. So 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 so, what what do you anticipate for these other pathways? Uh, I don't see dermal being an issue at all. Um, I think the problem with particulate inhalation is that we're, we're way down the road before we start to get into it. Everything now is really where, where do we need to be for drinking water. Yeah. And the other component is bioaccumulation in surface water bodies. So we're just at the beginning of that as well. So there could be a due care issue for an innocent landowner purchasing and developing? Yeah. I don't mean to get too complicated. But. It's going to be more complicated in other states because okay. you have an affirmative action to prevent migration at least in this, in this state, if you didn't cause it, it can still migrate off-site. So it becomes orphaned and becomes more of an issue in the state as opposed to the issue of the property. Of um, so we could probably navigate that way with it. So also how, one way that that well may not have it is that if you slowed it down, it probably maybe decreased its reach. More than likely. Yeah, so There could be different reasons, so there might still be there. Sometimes contaminants move in pulses. Sometimes they're at different distances. Um, So, you know, we're still looking at how do we navigate through this. But that's it. Um, I put up a bunch of websites that you can go to. Um, This this is just a, a, a few of them from EPA. Um, all of them were EPA, but if you go to the, if you just Google PFAS and EPA, it will take you to the site and it has a um, boatload of information. If you want to get into the toxicology, the, the state that I found has the best publications on the toxicology for at least what gets used is Minnesota Department of Health. So that's been a really good resource um, for me as well. So any other questions? Was so it legal to make products uh, with these chemicals in them now? So um yes and no. Um DuPont and 3M quit making it. Um you know, DuPont went through that merger with Dow and then they reformed. Before they went through that merger, they spun off all the QPOS manufacturing to uh or something like that, I know I mispronounced that. Um, so what they've done, because of liability, is they've changed the formula. So instead of doing this eight chain, there's another line that are coming out that, we, that are called Gen X. There's six carbons in there, so it's a little different formula, but EPA is trying to stay on top of that and look at what the toxicological risk is of Gen X. Um, but the industry is trying to change the formula so they still can produce a similar product. And from what I understand is that we still import PFOA and PFOS from China. So it's at a much lower quantity, but we still, it's still out there. And there are similar products that we just don't know what they do that are out there. I grew up near Saginaw Bay, and uh, so so, you, know, you could life walk it and see the whole foam thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in those cases, you know, they, the state would go actually collect a sample of it and then analyze it okay. to see so if it, there's PFAS. Yeah. But is there a distinction in the the way it looks? I mean, it could be, but even I would have a hard time distinguishing its okay. appearance. So, I mean, the foamy stuff on the inside that was mixed in the water, that is pretty clear but the foam buildup on the shore that would yeah. be hard to tell the difference between, between them. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. Well I want to thank you very much for making the drive all the way up here and taking the time to be with us and maybe you'll stick around and maybe answer some one-on-one questions if anybody sure. has So